All right, what's going on, everyone? So we've got a new guest today. Gabriel Taylor is joining us. Gabriel and I met um, on Discord. So we set up a server a little while ago. The original idea there was military history, but one of the areas that's gotten probably the most focus is questions around joining the military. And uh, there's a lot of that that comes on TikTok and Instagram, and a lot more than I can ever answer. So we put a channel in the Discord server and a handful of folks have jumped in there and are answering questions like day and night, and Gabriel's one of those. So um, we got to chat in a little bit and thought it'd be fun to have him on here and, and just kind of tell his story a bit. So Gabriel, thanks for doing this, man. No problem. Um, you mind giving a quick 30-second, two-minute background of yourself, kind of where you're coming from, uh, experiences with the military? Right. So uh, I am from Virginia. And I enlisted in 2016, my junior year, um, finished, graduated in 2017, and went to basic that summer, right after I graduated. Um, that was about four months down in uh, Harmony Church, Fort Benning. I uh, got to Fort Carson around November of 2017 and deployed, I think, about four months after that, by April, four or five months uh, back in April, and deployed to... Camp Dawkey, which is the old Fubshank, um, Logar province, from April to January 2019, came back and was in garrison for about two years, and then I got out this past November, so yeah, that's, that's about it. I like it, man. So uh, I, I've got this rant that's incomplete, but about this whole global war on terror, there were people who joined in, in a peacetime army in 2000, in 2000 and ended up deploying nine times or something crazy. Um, and then we have people who, it's, it's hard to imagine almost 20 years later, you joined and still went to fight the same war. Did you know when you enlisted? I mean, did you know that you were probably gonna go to Afghanistan or was it kind of hit or miss? So uh, right after, right before our graduation ceremony, our um, commander had came up and he's like uh going on the spiel was like you guys might deploy this that and, you know none of us really believed it because you know it's 2017 a lot of the big fighting it kind of stopped and um so i kind of second you know didn't really think much about it and then um soon as soon as i got to my unit for carson there was already rumors about deploying and this and that and uh, it was exciting obviously because every 17 18 19 year old wants to deploy and wants to go see combat and stuff so um it, it was it was kind of surreal but uh I was more excited you know I wasn't really thinking about the, the bigger picture hey I'm 18 years old and I'm joining a war that happened when I was like two years old so you know it's, it's pretty crazy were the people in your basic training class what was the mindset there were people like were they were they expecting to go were they wanting to go um, what'd that feel like? You could tell, uh, who wanted to go and who didn't want to go just by, uh, by the end, you could tell who was kind of there for college or money and, you know, who actually wanted to, to join. So a few people were only pushing to deploy. They, that was the only thing they wanted to do is go and kill. And then you had a few other people who were just like, Saying they wanted to, but, you know, you could tell they're kind of like, you know, I really don't because, you know, I don't want to 
put myself in that situation that I could die, you know, before I'm a, a year in the military. So, yeah. It's crazy how much that swung in these different directions. Again, to go back pre 9-11, like your deployments were to, you know, Saudi Arabia or somewhere else. It wasn't a combat deployment. Um, it wasn't like one in 10 went on combat deployment. Yeah. Like nobody did. Then you had this stretch in there. We'll call it 03 to 09, 10, maybe. We're like, it wasn't a matter of if, it was when. Everybody went and they were going repeatedly. And then in the last, I don't know, I don't want to say last 10 years, because I feel like it was still pretty fast tempo up until 13, 14, even. But it just started to tail off to where it was the opposite. And it seemed like one in 10 were going on combat deployments versus all the rest. Just interesting how much that shifted. Absolutely. So, so oh, go ahead. Well, as you can say, so you were in, in Logar province, Afghanistan, that's kind of south of Kabul, um, old Fob Shank. I just did a video. I haven't put it up yet. A video about Fob Shank kind of how that name came about. Um, but Camp Dalkey is kind of this small piece of Shank. Is that right? Yeah. So Camp Dalkey was, um, uh, if I'm correct, it was named after a ranger from one of the one of the battalions from the 75th. Um, he got killed back in 2009, I believe. But uh, Camp Dalkey is like an extension to the old Shank. So if you look at it on a map, it's this giant air base, but they only, at least the U.S. only, cut off like a small portion specifically around the actual airstrip and then a couple you know tents and small areas to the side and then the ANA was on the opposite side so between our area and the ANA's area was just a giant wasteland of old tents and buildings that no one uses so so when you got ready to go and you're at your unit you said you showed up with we'll call it four-ish months before you left did you know what your mission was going to be? Pretty good idea what you're going to be doing. Um, not, not really. Um, they gave us a rough idea. So that year, I think it was the first one of the first deployments for SFAB. I'm sure you've heard of SFAB, but mm -hmm. it's one of the first deployments for SFAB to actually go and test out specifically what they were supposed to do. So um, I'd heard a couple things, but you know, I wasn't really concern or well, I wasn't really brought in on specific what the mission was you know they didn't really tell us the details until we actually got in country so I had a rough idea um but I still had the mindset like hey we're gonna get into firefights every day and do all this cool stuff but uh, was was not that at all so but that's another crazy thing about this conflict is if you and like the locate like Fob Shank for a long time was in the mix like those dudes were getting shot at and doing some shooting every day, different years. Then there's other parts of Afghanistan in the, the peak surge that were relatively peaceful. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a very hard story to tell, even if we just focus on Afghanistan, because year to year, location to location, it's totally different experiences. So by 2017, it was the Afghans that were kind of in charge, right? Is that the right way to say it? Yeah, yeah. So are they doing most of the patrolling? So patrolling uh, wasn't 
wasn't a big thing, at least for us, you know, being a scout unit, we operate a lot smaller than infantry units and stuff like that. So I think I watched a, a video and you said you guys had, I think upwards of 80 people in your, your company. We only had about 40 between two platoons. So, um, patrolling was kind of more left to engineers actually on our side. Um, so they were doing route clearance almost, almost every day, just because, you know, firefights and IDs weren't, as common at least that late in the war so they had a lot more room they had a lot more people and you know casualties were pretty much non-existent for the most part so uh engineers did most of that stuff we did a couple mounted a couple dismounted but it wasn't it wasn't that common so something i remember so i i went from the schoolhouse at fort sills and artillerymen to the unit 101st and it was like let's see I always remember I got there on April Fool's Day or like right around April Fool's Day and we deployed the beginning of June. So two months, I'd around two months. At that point, you're not really doing any training with the unit at all. Um, It's packing gear, right? It's all the boring stuff and long weekends, long three or four day weekends. Mm. But uh, I remember after a month or so in Afghanistan thinking there's like three different versions of the army. There's what they teach you in the schoolhouse. There's what you actually do in the army. And then there's what you actually do downrange. Uh, yeah that's, did you did you experience that yeah well see i got there at a weird time because tra- obviously everyone knows tradeoff and forcecom are two completely different beasts um so uh like the last two months of basic training OSUT was doing actual scout stuff from the dot nine eight and then i get to my unit we go on christmas leave in december uh, NTC that January, like the first week we get back from leave and then NTC doing more scout stuff and then got our orders for deployment. And then it was just deployment training. So we did like a month of deployment training, um, which is the training that most people just don't do, you know, every, every day. So about a month or so of that. And then it was, yeah, like you said, packing gear off RFI medical, all that, all that stuff. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll add some context for the people that aren't military that are listening. Um, TRADOC is the training side of the military. So it's split out. Think of basic training, officer candidate school, stuff like that. Um, that's TRADOC. And then FORCECOM is the actual, what most people think of when it comes to the army, the units that are deploying and and stationed at bases around the country. So the training side versus the, um, execution side, maybe is a way to put it. And then NTC national training center out in California, right? Um, yeah, so big, massive. There's a couple of those. There's one down in, in Louisiana as well. A place that units go to is kind of like their final test before deployment. It, it has like, it gives you the opportunity usually to do things that you can't do when you're training at Fort Carson or at, at Fort Campbell. So it's interesting. What'd you think of NTC? I've been twice now since since I my, my four years, uh, once in summer, once in winter, and winter is a lot better than summer. Um, it's funny that you say that it's like a kind of like a final test for deployment when uh, we did nothing remotely close to what we did in Afghanistan and NPC. We were doing OPs and, and uh, zone air recon, all that, you know, scout stuff. And then nothing to do with deployment or, or patrols or any of that. So, you know, it's, I don't know. I think it's more just like a check off the box for higher ups, but who knows? I got to think there's at some level, there's uh, a benefit from it, right? Maybe it's not at the trigger pull level, but maybe, maybe for planners, it's, it's a big, 
it's a big thing. I for I went to JRTC once. That's the one down in Louisiana, yeah. and it's like a black box in my memory, man. I have very for spending a month there. I have very few memories about the time, like very very few. I don't know. We were sleep deprived, I'm sure. So maybe that was part of it. But like, I if you drop me back there in the middle of it, I you wouldn't believe that I was ever there. Like I wouldn't know where to go. I wouldn't know what anything was. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's the right way to deal with it. Just block that stuff out. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember pretty vividly because it was my first training exercise of that unit. So, um, kind of got to, I wouldn't say prove myself, but, uh, got to interact with people I'd be deploying with, um, for the first time. So. And when you guys got down range, or let's talk about that, the movement down range. I feel like it's so easy when you read books and you get into movies, you're just bam, you're at the strong point or at the OP. Um, but there's this huge buildup, including actually getting there. What did your process look like to get there? Um, so obviously we didn't, I was in a striker union, so we didn't take strikers to Afghanistan, thankfully. Um, it was honestly probably a lot smoother than a lot of the things we've, we've gone through. But uh, what I can remember is, you're talking about the actual like transition or traveling the, out there? The travel, yeah. So like the commercial yeah. flights and bouncing around and all that stuff. Uh, so I can't tell you specifically how long it took us to get to Afghanistan, but I remember um, I think we left about midday here in, in Carson. Uh, we flew from our first flight was the state of Colorado to I think we stopped over there at one of those states uh, near New York, uh, Connecticut or something up there. And then from there, we went to Germany. Don't know where in Germany, but I think they told us it was around Frankfurt. Um, stayed there for a couple hours. Germany to Kuwait for Ali Salim, And then took a bus to Camp Beering. And then there for about a week. And then we went to Bagram right after that. And then that's, that's that the rest of history. So. Is it a drive? Did you drive to Shank or is that a helicopter? Uh, no, we uh, C-130. Oh yeah, there's an airstrip there. Okay. Yeah. Did you guys have those weird civilian helicopters that could transport people between bases? Yeah, yeah. Those remember are, what that was called? Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but uh, I, I enjoyed flying with them a lot more than than army pilots. So, in 2010, I was in Kandahar in 2010. I don't know if that didn't exist or if we just didn't have them down there. Um, so it was all military aircraft, mostly Blackhawk. I mean, well, Blackhawks and Chinooks. And then when I went out east in 2012 to Logman, that was how you got around. Like one in 10 trip. It was hard to get a Blackhawk anywhere unless it was like a contested area or um, and I don't want to say unsecured because that makes it sound more dangerous than it was. But like we'd hand bases over to the A&A and they would take, we'd take Blackhawks there. But we'd jump on these, I don't even know what they're called, but straight up civilian helicopters with dudes that pretty strong vibe they were former military flying those things all over the place yeah so we uh did quite a bit of traveling i think uh one of the troops in our squadron was at um fob lightning i don't know if you've heard of that but uh we did a, ba- a lot of back and forth and we did uh, only civilian flights to there because they only had um helipads there so they didn't have a, an actual um tarmac and um I think 
it's different with the civilian flights is because they, they don't have a lot of restrictions and what they can and can't do because they don't they don't carry 240s and door gunners and stuff like that so nothing yeah um it's just a, it's a little, for for us it was a lot more fun because uh they did some crazy stuff they get super high and then they turn sideways and just go straight down and do all this crazy stuff and it was it was a lot of fun so i think their routes so like it, it, again this one window of time logged in 2010 or couple into KL, I think it was called, they had like a ring route they would fly. They'd go from Jalalabad to Gambari to Metterlam and like just back and forth. So it was just like, it was always like, it was like taking a bus, you know, you yeah. put your name on this list and get picked up. So uh, I could see how that would get boring. And I can see how the pilots then would be like, this is too boring. Let's find some way to have some fun. Yeah. Um, you said the you, a lot of them probably are former military, at least from the vibes I was getting. You know, Jack tattoos. You know, just you could they, they just put you know they put the vibe there, and it was it, it felt better knowing that you know maybe not another soldier, but at least someone who's probably been here is is still still in control. So you know, what's crazy is I don't think I'd ever. I remember the first time getting on one of those, thinking like we're gonna get shot down. This is how it's going to happen. What on earth is this thing? I didn't even know it was a thing in Afghanistan. Um, I don't think I've ever heard of an issue with one of those going like casualties coming out of one of those civilian birds coming down or even getting shot at. I'm sure they got shot at, but maybe not shot. Yeah. Up. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, the, the, we flew on those quite a bit um, compared to Chinooks and Blackhawks and, I think the only time one of ours we actually got shot at in a Chinook from pretty far was like two, two or three, two or three shots. And um but the civilian civilian birds, no, they didn't they didn't get shot at quite a bit. So and I don't know why. It's it's weird. You'd think you'd think the Taliban would want to shoot at those more than you know Blackhawks or Chinooks, but I don't know. They shot at Medivacs. I mean, it, this this isn't like an integrity ethics thing. Yeah. Um, they shot at everything else, just I don't know. But uh, so Shank used to get hit by a lot of rockets. Was was Dalky still kind of home of the yes. rock? You're laughing, yeah. Ab- absolutely, absolutely. I uh, I don't think it was nearly as much as uh, back then, but um, I'd say at least three or four a week at the minimum. It, it was still constant. Uh, I think that was more scarier than actually you know rounds getting shot at or any of that stuff. Is hearing the alarm go off. Luckily we had the, the CRMs there. So, but uh, from, from what I was told, the CRMs are only like 60, 65% effective. So every now and then, if you didn't hear it get blown up in the sky, you know, you're just waiting for it to hit somewhere. And I think the closest one to hit to our, our uh, troops compound was like a hundred, 150 meters away. So. So CRMs are these, this crazy technology is way over my head, but it essentially will shoot rockets, even mortars and things out of the air. Um, if you look that up on YouTube or something, it, it, it looks like, um, it looks like a laser pointer almost, except it's a stream of bullets, I think, right? Small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wild. But, um, how effective were those, the, uh, the sirens? Like, did you guys actually get a warning? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I could probably find it, but it's, it's just an alarm. And then I have like a robotic voice that says incoming three times. And then it repeats that over and over again. So, um, I think 
you know, at first when, when it first when we first got there and the alarm would go off, you know, people would freak out a little bit and kind of run to the bunkers and you know do the thing. But near like the last, you know, eighth or ninth month, it was kind of just like, you know, whatever. Oh. Like, I don't, you know, if it hits the bunker, you're still probably, you know, you're still probably get taken out. So, um, but they're, they're effective, definitely, definitely. Were they the one twenty or the, what is it, one twenty-two millimeter rock? I don't remember what it is, but the uh, it was like one standard rock that was used a lot, right? I think it was a hundred and six or hundred and eight millimeter Chinese rocket. I gotcha. Yeah. But relatively accurate. Were they hitting inside the base pretty frequently? Yeah, they hit a lot of their uh shots hit the actual um airstrip and around there. So uh I think they hit right next to a couple Blackhawks, but um they were shooting from um what's the town? Uh, Rocky Brock, I think is the big town. Um that was about a click away. You could see it from 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 Dalkey, but um yeah, they, they only hit pretty much the tarmac. They hit a couple in living areas, but no one actually got injured or no casualties from the rockets themselves. So. We had some rocket attacks when I was coming in and out of Kandahar Airfield. That was kind of like where we flew into and then moved out into the boonies. And um, I don't know, they were they were frequent enough. The The sirens were a joke. The, the kind of saying was, if you heard a siren, you were all clear because the round had already hit, you know? Um, a lot of times you could you could even see like like you might even see dust somewhere and then 30 seconds later the siren goes off and you're like oh that's what that thing over there was um but i remember hearing how they were doing that i'm sure it varied by area but these rockets so like it's this weird mix of being able to hit anything the way that they're firing them is really impressive but they're also really inaccurate based off what they could be because they they would kind of set them down on rocks and they wouldn't be there when they fired. Cause we can see it's not anything new. The U S military militaries around the world have the ability to kind of see generally where a round comes from um, with all sorts of radar. So they would set these things up in a way, I think in the South, they were using like some water jugs and they'd poke some holes in the bottom and the water would run out over like 15 minutes. And when it completely ran out, there was something that would cause the rocket to, to ignite. So, you know, they could set it, walk away, and 15 minutes later, here comes this rocket that's, it's aimed, but not that much. Yeah. Is, it, yeah. is that kind of what they were doing for you guys? Um, uh, so, actually, it's kind of funny. Um, eventually, uh, we could tell if they um, found who launched the rocket or generally an area. So, um, usually, if they found kind of like the area it came from uh you'd see i think about maybe 10 15 20 minutes after the attack um some apaches would fly out and go to that area and just kind of look around um but every time they were dead on like right after a rocket attack you could tell they knew specifically if someone was there or where it came from because right after they'd be outbound they'd say hey we got outbound fire going and then the triple sevens would just open up for 10 minutes so that's something you talk about how far technology's come. Um, a capability in the U.S. military is to be able to tie in that radar to, and I'm not telling Gabriel this, it's just for anybody who doesn't know, I'm sure he does, but um, the radar can pick up where that round comes from, can be sent directly to the gun line, and they can put an artillery round, 155 millimeter, or the mortars, 120 or 81, can have a round out of their tube potentially before that first round hits. As in like, you know, depending on how far away it's fired, 30 seconds to a minute, they can be ready to fire back. Um, so the Taliban aren't stupid. 
they usually didn't fire those rounds and, and sit around and watch. No, definitely not. Did you guys have much direct fire out there or was it mostly those rockets? No, no. So kind of where, where Dalkey or Shanks at is it's a lot of open area around the entire, entire area. So um, they, they did every now and then um, one of our um, missions, uh, the SFAB had a comp compound on the ANA side, right out, right outside their, uh, their side of the fob. And they had about a platoon, platoon and a half of guys there. And um so when they left, their deployment was over. Someone still had to had a man that that uh, outpost. So we would rotate in our troop. We'd rotate, you know, first and second platoon, and they'd stay there for a week, and then we'd switch. And um, apparently, they the Taliban knew we were there because for the longest they during the night they'd open up for about thirty minutes, and um, where they were shooting from, there was an ANA tower, one of their towers on the outer Hesco wall, and we thought they were shooting at them, and then eventually talking to the ANA soldiers are like, no, they're shooting at you guys from eight, 900 meters away, which is kind of weird, but so. Hope and a prayer. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there's, besides that, there was a couple, um, a couple people who got into five, 10 minute firefights, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything to, to write home about. So. I remember this kind of transition while I was deployed where there's a period of like, there's, fear and boredom and all of that kind of plays in at different times. But I remember writing a letter home at one point saying, I like this because I felt like every day I got up and I was doing my job and I knew what I was supposed to be doing. And it was action packed in the sense that there was always something to be done. Did you have anything like that? How did that compare for you? Afghanistan versus garrison life? Uh, so I constantly told this to, you know, the guys under me when I, you know, obviously, you know, when you get back, there's a bunch of new people. So talking to them, I, I told this constant, like deployment is the only time where you actually get to, to do your job in a sense. So I, it was worse for me because that's, that's what I experienced coming into the army is a deployment, you know, and you have guys who are in six, six, eight, 10 years who don't have deployment. So I was lucky enough to start off, going straight to a deployment versus going to garrison. And um, so it kind of made getting back garrison was just a drag and it was just terrible compared to, to deployment. So. Now, a lot of people are, that's going to be their experience with the military now. And I think you'd mentioned that you're, so you're out right now. Yeah. But thinking pretty seriously about heading back in. Oh, that's, that's a hundred percent. That's, that's happening. So it's done. So, um, you're going to be in that boat now for however long, probably not. Well, I don't know. I hate saying that. I, I always hate the question when it's what's the next war and who's going to deploy next. Like who knows in, in, yeah. in September, September 5th, 2001, nobody knew there were going to be any deployments at all. Right. So yeah. anyways, yeah. it's possible that you get back in and spend 25 years in the army and never deploy again. So what do you think? I'm I'm willing to to take that risk just because there's just something about active duty, something about the military. I couldn't tell you specifically what it is, but uh, it's just it's completely different than now. Like getting out, especially for me, it was during COVID, so it was just a weird time. Um, I had originally had some contracting gigs set up um, when things were still going on, but 
between COVID and then, you know, things going on to just kind of a lot of those plans fell through because, you know, four years and one deployment is kind of at the bottom of the totem pole for contracting because they want a lot of ex-SF guys and stuff like that. So, you know, it's been about, I'm coming up on about a year. So it's been about a year out and then seeing a lot of my, my buddies who are married and their kids, you know, staying in and still doing all that, seeing videos and seeing them take pictures and them in training just kind of, you know, it's something I'm good at. Like it's just something I'm good at instead of, yeah, I didn't go to college. I didn't do any trades. It's just the army is what I knew, especially coming right out of high school. It's the only thing I learned, you know, adulting. And so that's just something I, I want to get back to. So West Point, when I was there really, well, I don't know, maybe this wasn't when it started, but it's when I remember hearing it for the first time that they were really heading on this path of calling the army a profession, the profession of arms. Um, so it, it's not this other thing. It's like a thing. You know, it's something that you work at and then hone your profession, whether that's leadership or marksmanship or whatever it might be. Um, so it's not, you know, you're saying like, that's the thing you're good at. Like, it's an awesome thing to be good at. Um, I think it'll be interesting in the next, you know, this next stretch here, because you're going to be part of a, a small group that has deployed, has deployed to a combat zone. Um, I think we'd probably both agree that that doesn't make somebody no. better soldier, better leader by any stretch, but it's going to be every single day that becomes rarer and rarer um, as people exit the military and the new people coming in don't do that. So I think, I think there's a lot of benefits, you know, the stability. Were you single, no kids when you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Single, no kids. Yeah. Same man. How easy is it employment when you don't have to worry about that stuff? Um, Absolutely. But think of how many families have, have split up because of the separation. I think my first, I think the NCO I worked with the first time when we deployed together in 2010, it was like his fifth time going, you know, like, come on, can't, that's such a hard time on the family. So I, I know there's still going to be long training exercises and you'll be in the field a lot, but I got to think there's some benefits too to uh, maybe slowing down the, the deployment tempo, you know? Yeah. So um, I think it's going to, for the most part, I think training's going to, at least for 11 Bravos, 19 Deltas, 19 Kilos, it's going to go back to more conventional ways of training instead of worrying about, you know, because, you know, every now and then, even when Afghanistan was still going on, we still did a couple things, you know, urban ops and stuff like that, just to kind of get people somewhat a mindset of, of how things would go. But I think now it's just going to transition completely to fighting near peer China, Russia, stuff like that, so. It'd be cool. It's uh, it's it's weird how that's happened, man. That was it. That was the thing that everybody did and focused on big Cold War battles, and then we just kind of stopped. Um, I think that could be fun training to do to a degree, right? Better than at least if you're combat arms, probably more entertaining than than trying to figure out how to talk to local villagers and learn two words yeah. in Dari that you never use or forget right away. But yes, uh, so actually someone asked me this, I think in, in Discord, um, they were like, what's the point of the Marines? And it took me a minute to kind of sit there. And for the past 20 years, like like you just said, like it's, that's all anyone's focus is about is the Middle East. So there wasn't really a big difference between Marines and soldiers over there. So now I think it definitely needs to get back to, you know, what we're supposed to be doing specifically more for them and for the armies focused more on, on larger scale than just, you know, guerrilla 
uh, guerrilla warfare and stuff like that. So I like it. Well, it'll be interesting. And uh, I hope we stay in touch, man, because I want to hear what the experience was pre, you know, first go around and second go around. But uh, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up today for anybody that wants to follow up with Gabriel, um, jump into the discord. He's in there answering questions day and night. I think you sleep sometimes, but hard to tell. <laughs> But, dude, thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. No coming problem. on. Thanks for your service. Thanks for jumping back in. I think it's an awesome career move. And, uh, yeah, hope to stay in touch, man. All righty. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Yep. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.